Folks, you're so welcome. Uh, if you are a guest or visitor um, this morning, we do hope that you feel at home and at ease. Um, I don't know if you've seen the news yet this morning, but um, there, there was a, a, a bomb went off in, in uh, Derry last night, and um, I got this this morning from we have a vineyard church up in uh, in the city up there, and Ben and Shan Lee just texted us this this morning. Good morning. Just thought I'd let you know about our beautiful city, Derry. There was a bomb last night outside the courthouse, right beside where we meet. Uh, the whole area is cordoned off, so instead we're meeting on the streets to pray and intercede for our city. As with other vineyards, we're praying um, this week, expectant for all that God is purposing for our city. Please pray for us at this time and for our city, for old wounds, for people here, that this brings up much love, uh, Ben and Shan Lee. So we're just going to do that as a family this morning as we begin. So if you're able, would you just stand with me? I'm going to pray, and then we'll continue. Um, Lord Jesus, you said that um, those who build peace would be known as children of God. And we pray for a generation of peace builders to rise in the city of Derry. God, we pray this morning that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done in that city. God, we pray for uh, those traumatized again this morning of loved ones who've been lost, of old wounds and Lord, we pray that they would know your comfort and your peace. Father, we pray this morning for all those who lead your people in that city. God, we pray for courage and for vision. We pray for traditional divides and defining boundaries to be stepped across. We pray for new friendships to be given birth to. And Lord, we pray too for um, our security forces for politicians and civic leaders. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You can grab a seat. So if you haven't seen me around for a while, I, I was off for a few weeks in December, and it is uh, good to be back. Um, I have to be very careful whenever I say that. Um, about 11 years ago, Dana and I were just dating. We came home to Ireland for a few weeks, and uh, then we went back to the States where we were living, and Dana was actually preaching the Sunday we got back. And um, there was about 2,000 people in the room, and she tried to say it's good to be back and said it's good to be black. <laughs> and, um, and ever since, every time I go to say it's good to be back, I find myself nearly saying it's good to be black, which, of course, I would know nothing about. Um, it's good to be married to someone who's black, I guess. Uh, anyway, um, it is good to be back. Um, yeah, we had a great time in December, lots of family time, lots of rest, and it was awesome. We uh, celebrated our 10th wedding anniversary in November. Um, I know. Yeah, some of you are like, they've still got L plates up. Um, anyway, um, but 10 years ago, whenever we were married... Um, we got married in the States, and then we came back here to church in Ballinhinch, actually, that we were part of at the time, and we did a blessing uh, there one Saturday afternoon, and then that evening, uh, we went to my grandparents' house for, I guess, a bit of a celebration, and um, there was about 30 of us of our closest friends and our family all at one giant table, and it was just the most incredible Evening. We were reflecting a bit, as you do, at big anniversaries in November about everything that's happened in the last uh, 10 years. And uh, to this day, 
that moment, those uh, few hours we celebrated together as family around that table were some of the most incredible in our life together. We ate amazing food. We drank incredible wine. For any of you who have heard me uh, talk about my grandfather before, you will know that uh, he is a bit of a wine connoisseur. He's his own cellar with anywhere between, I guess, four and six odd thousand bottles at a time. Uh, he's 93 and he's still collecting and we're like, what are you, action fact, keep going, keep going. <laughs> That is good. He has destroyed our palate, actually, for the wine that we can afford to buy for um, ourselves. But it was an incredible night. All of the people that we loved in one room, we told stories around the table. We talked over each other. It was much louder than it probably uh, should have been. We even had the crazy uncle that got on everybody's nerves. Um, We laughed, and we laughed. And we laughed. It's one of those moments where all of the uncertainty about life and the future kind of dissolved. And everything felt like it should. I wonder when was the last time you had a moment like that where kind of time stood still just for the briefest kind of moment and you went, this is what life is all about. You see, the reality is that we were designed for community. God created us not to do life on our own, but to share it with others. Any of you remember the show Friends? Any Friends fans? You know, it's funny, you start to feel like you get old and there's like a whole generation that have never heard of Friends. You're like, how could you not have? Anyway, uh, there's a reason why that show captured the imagination of so many. A bunch of people simply doing life together. I mean, that was pretty much the story of Friends. It wasn't anything more complicated than that. It was a TV show about a group of friends being Friends, it's the most creative title ever thought up for a TV show. And yet there was something about it that we long for. Any of you do that thing with your friends when you're watching it where you all like give each other a character? Like who, who was most like? No? It's just my weird friends. Anyway. Um, see, we were designed by a community. We were created to exist in community. We were created to commune with each other and with God. And life is just simply not what it's supposed to be when it's done without others. Life doesn't make sense in isolation, and it was never supposed to be. Loneliness is at an epidemic in our culture, and it is one of the most tragic, tragic things. We talk about this often, but the primary metaphor in the scriptures for God's people, for the church, is that of a family. God designed this beautiful community known as a church to function like a family. And whenever it comes to Jesus, we seem to spend an awful lot of time talking about the miraculous virgin birth. We spend a lot of time talking about his crucifixion and resurrection. We talk about miracles, teachings, healing the sick, casting out demons, feeding thousands. And we often, in the midst of all of that, miss how human he was. Jesus was not just an example to us about what God is like, but he was also intended to be an example of what humanity is supposed to look like. 
I wonder if you ever noticed, for those of you that read the scriptures, the ebb and flow in between some of the most dramatic and radical moments in Jesus' life of incredible miracles and all sorts of like confrontation with religious powers and elites that in the midst of it all are these incredibly ordinary moments of eating and sleeping and eating and talking with friends and eating and eating. Jesus seems to spend a disproportionate amount of his time, at least that which is recorded in the scriptures for us, at parties. Chances are, if you find Jesus somewhere in the Bible, he is either headed to a party, at a party, or coming from a party. I always find that interesting, because if you stop, like, Joe Bloggs on the street and tell him, what do you think about the church? You're supposed to represent Jesus on earth. Like, what, what do you think they're like? Often you get this, well, a bit stuffy, a little bit boring, not all that much fun. And yet the first miracle mentioned in the Bible, Jesus is, guess what, at a party. It's at a wedding party. And the wine has run out, which is a pretty catastrophic thing to happen at a wedding. But you have to understand something about this moment. So the wine has run out for one reason and one reason only. Everybody's drunk all the wine. So this is not the most sober moment of the party. This kind of hurts our heads a little bit, and I, I understand that. But anyway, so the wine runs out. Everybody's drunk all the wine. They're in whatever state you are when you've drunk all the wine. And then Jesus' mum says, hey, they've run out of wine. You should fix that. <laughs> and this is the Bible. This isn't me, right? So just before any of you get really uncomfortable, this, you can look it up. It's in there. And Jesus goes and takes the water that was used for ceremonial washing. I love this. This is like a red rag to a religious bull. So he, he takes the water that's supposed to purify you to make you holy. And he turns that into the best wine any of the drunk people have ever tasted in their life. It hurts our heads a little bit. Before you misunderstand me, the scriptures are quite clear. We are not encouraging drunkenness, and the Bible does not condone it. But Jesus definitely adds to it in this moment. And we can argue all day long about why is there the wherefores. Here's what I want you to notice, that Jesus, when you invite him in, enhances the party, always. He enhances whatever environment he finds himself in. And it's not just Jesus, and it's not just in the New Testament. When you actually read through how God designed the people of Israel, kind of how their calendar should work and what they should prioritize in their life and their rhythms as a culture and a society, God writes into that seven different celebrations throughout the year that last, some of them, weeks at a time. God is a God of celebration, of festival, of party. You need to understand that. Some of us would much prefer a God of lament, right? God who's angry all the time, God who's grumpy all the time. Particularly here in Northern Ireland, we feel kind of most at ease when we're grumpy, right? Just listen to how we talk. How are you doing? Not too bad. God forbid you would ever say, great! There <laughs> we get a moment, you meet somebody, you're like, how are you doing? They say, great. You're like, mm-mm-mm. Watch out for that one. It is good news 
God loves Northern Ireland, but he's not from here. <laughs> he's a God of celebration, of fun, of parties. These festivals that God wrote into the life and rhythm of the people of Israel, they were extravagant for days, young, and there was food, there was wine, there was dancing. They went on for days, young and old, together in celebration. I wonder, do you notice how some of your most significant relationships happen around tables? It's interesting, you know, when we go to socialize, some of us do this, right? But we're a bit odd. Rarely do you say, do you want to go sit on a bench? Right? Have I ever asked you to go sit on a bench? Maybe when you're a teenager and you're trying to get a sneaky snog, but, you know. <laughs> but most of the time, there's a table involved, right? You want to go for lunch? You want to go for coffee? And we we share food or drinks. And in that context, the richness of life and relationship is formed. Jesus, if he's anything, you could say he's an expert on parties. He's an expert on parties. And I want us to look at uh, this passage that Laura read this morning. I think in it we find um, what a friend of ours in the States used to call party theology. A theology of parties. One Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? I think it's really interesting. We spent a few weeks off as a family together in December and um, point, the point was kind of rest. And... Um, so people said to me as I kind of came back to work, like, did you feel like God said anything to you while you were off? And um, honestly, like the thing that I felt like I was most reminded of in December as I kind of wandered the hills of Dramara was a gentle kind of rebuke from God. Andy, you've got a bit intense. Things have got a bit heavy and a bit serious. You've forgotten that I have an incredible sense of humor. There's an old Irish philosopher named John O'Donoghue. He died in about 2006. But he he used to say um, that he noticed something about people that were really, really holy. He said, the thing I notice about really holy people is usually the more holy they are, the more devilment is present. Proper Connemara lilt to how he said that. And what he was saying was, the more like God we become, usually the more rascally we become. Playful. Beware of the holy person who doesn't know how to laugh. Beware of the holy person who is serious all the time. And I am as guilty of being there, I guess, sometimes as anybody. And I love the reminder in December of how God says that when we walk with him, our burdens become light. And we 
learn how to laugh. You know, it's a supernatural thing in the midst of the pain and mess and brokenness of what life is to be able to walk lightly. In this moment, in this passage, I think sometimes we can be guilty of reading our own intensity into Jesus all the time. And we think he's kind of cross and grumpy and angry, but what if he's actually having some fun? This moment, he's at a, guess what, a party. He's sitting around a table, a bunch of religious rulers and incredibly important people. And I love that the text records that they're watching him carefully. Ever been around people like that? It's like they're waiting for him to make a mistake. And I love that it seems like there's some sort of connection in the text between the fact that the religious rulers are watching him and what he then does. It's like he notices they're waiting for him to do something wrong and he cannot help but provoke and expose their misplaced religious intensity. Behold, there was a man who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Just imagine the scene, right? He's at a dinner party. There's lots of people there. Some are at the table, some are in the room. People are jostling for position, trying to get closer to Jesus so that maybe they can get their important question answered or maybe they can present how impressive they actually are. Maybe just so they can hear exactly what it is that he is saying. And that the edge of the group, right on the periphery, is a man who is sick. Have you ever been in an environment where somebody who wasn't supposed to be there walks in? Ever had that moment where, um, none of you good people would have ever experienced this, but I'm sure you have a friend who's experienced this, you know, where they're talking about somebody and then that person walks into the room? You know that atmosphere that happens where it's like, we, whenever I was teenagers, it was terrible, but we used to have like a, an expression and then the car flipped over and everybody, but everybody was okay. That was what we said when you were talking about somebody else and they walked in and everybody knew you and it was easy. That's just weird, isn't it? Anyway. Um, but this moment, this is this moment where there's a guy at the edge who's really not well and Jesus notices him. And rather than ignoring him or trying to keep everybody's attention somewhere else, Jesus takes him and brings him right into the middle. Jesus has a bit of a habit with this, where like he takes the things that would make us awkward or uncomfortable, and he just brings them right here. Will ever imaginably happen to you, especially if you're a teenager, is something awkward, right? Like awkward is the enemy of all life and existence. Like whatever you do, don't make it awkward. Don't ask awkward questions. Don't say awkward things. Just don't be awkward. If that's how you do life, Jesus is going to be hard for you. Because he seems to enjoy awkward. He creates awkward all the time. And he takes this sick man on the edge 
This person on the periphery, the one who everyone is doing their best to ignore their presence. And he brings them right, he brings them right into the center, leaning into the awkward. And then again, he does what he does best. He like just pushes into the awkward. You have to understand these are all important religious people. And Jesus takes the sick man on the outside and brings him right into the center to the table. And everyone is doing the like, oh, Jesus, what are you doing? And then he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He just takes what was already awkward and just ramps it up. He's surrounded by the holy elite. And he basically asks them, how does God interpret and apply his own rules? How does God interpret and apply his own rules? Here's a sick man in front of you. It happens to be the Sabbath day. What do you think God would do were he here? Because you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. Of course, nobody says anything. They have that fridge magnet sitting over to the side, you know. Better to keep your mouth shut and appear stupid than open it and confirm it. They're all in that mode, right? They're like, don't say anything, you'll get it wrong. Don't say anything. Here's what you need to understand. See to God, rules are never more important than people. Rules are never more important than people. Then he speaks again to these holy elite. Which of you having a son or an ox that's fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull them out. They could not reply to these things. Why? Because they had been using religious rule to justify their lack of concern and care for the hurting and the broken all around them. It's kind of funny though the way Jesus phrases that, right? Which of you having a son or an ox that's fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out. Any of you find it strange that he seems to put a son and an ox on equal footing? Like, which of you having a son or an ox that fell into a hole wouldn't, like, bend over and pull him out? But in this culture, your son was your legacy, your future. And your ox was your ability to provide for your family and create that Legacy. Jesus is saying that the very least in our eyes mean the absolute most in God. And we are on incredibly dangerous ground when we use the scriptures to justify in any way our lack of care and concern for human beings. Can I push you just a little bit? We have seen this play out time and time and time again in this country over the last 30 or 40 years, particularly when it comes to the gay community. We use the scriptures to justify a lack of compassion and care. Rules, rules are never more important than people. Never more important than people. God loves, God loves people. And yes, things are very complicated once we start to move into that whole world of human sexuality, and I understand that. 
But if people hear nothing else from us, they must hear that God loves people. All people. Every single person. He loves people. He loves, he loves, he loves people. Verse 7 says, When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the bed. You both will come and say, Give this thing to you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited you both will come and say, Give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus begins to notice the people at the party are fighting for position. I wonder if you've ever been there where people are leveraging for the best seat. It happens at concerts all the time. You know, you just try to squeeze past people just to get that little bit, that little bit closer. Whenever I lived in LA, I had a friend who worked for Universal Studios. And... Uh, my roommate and I asked her, do you know, it would be possible for us to like get on to like a tour, like a backstage tour or something like that, you know? And she's like, yeah, like I think we could probably work that out. We do this really exclusive tour. It's quite expensive, you know? But um, let me let me see what I can do. And so she came and grabbed us one day. She's like, come, come, you know? So we met her uh, at Universal Studios and she, she got us in and there was this kind of group that were waiting to start this pretty exclusive tour. And so my roommate and I, she said, like, just, just tag along at the end. They'll go into that theater for a minute and there'll be a briefing and then they'll do this thing. And <clears throat> she said, but keep your heads down. Don't ask any questions or whatever, you know, because it's expensive and you don't have tickets and whatever. I said, no problem. We can definitely do that. And so we go and sit in this theater and uh, we're, we're waiting. And the person that's taking the tour has this moment where they're like looking a bit confused. There's probably only about 35 of us in these seats. And then they leave and they come back with another person who has a clipboard and I can see them counting. And me and my friend are like, oh no. And the door is on the other side of them. So it's not even like we can kind of like, are we, oh my goodness, we must be in the wrong place. Sorry, everybody. So we thought, just say nothing, sit here, you know, and they count and then they're like shaking their heads like this is really confusing. And so they count again. And um, eventually (coughs) one of them says, Really sorry, folks, we're going to get started in a second. Just need you all to do one thing for us. We're going to read out a list of names. And when you hear your name called out, if you just raise your hand or say that you're here, that'd be really helpful. We're like, we're in so much trouble. So they, of course, read out all the names. And then they count again. And then the girl goes, "Um, if we did, so me and my friend are like, would would you just, just wave at us? So me and my friend are like, and one of the girls is like, come, come with us. And so we stood up and walked out in front of everybody and like walked into this office. It was properly like teenager going to the headmaster's office. And the girl was like, how did you get here? Now we're in like big diffs because we don't want to get our friend who works there in trouble. And we're like, we just heard it was a tour and like you just came along and the girl was like, this is really expensive, really exclusive. Like you can't just come. And we were like, oh, I'm so sorry, no idea. And she was like, all right, well, you better, you better leave. But it was so embarrassing. Like, it was proper, like, walk of shame in front of everyone. Yes, we don't belong here. We don't have the income all of you have, and blah, 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 blah. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. 
when you make life all about you, sooner or later, you stumble into humiliation. The first thing that you need to understand about party theology is this. Make life less about you and more about others. Make life less about you and more about others. This really famous guy once said that it's better to give than to get. Imagine if that were true and you actually ordered your life around that. That actually life works better when you do all that you can wherever you are to prefer other people. When you walk into a room, your first impulse is not, how do I get to the front of the queue or to the best seat? How do I find myself talking to the important person? But what would happen if everywhere you went, your first impulse is, who needs something here? How can I help? Make life less about you and more about others. Too many times in life, whether we're aware of it or not, particularly in church, we find ourselves asking the question, where do I get my needs met? But what about, what about me? And the reality is we all have needs. We all need friends, we all need community, we all need relationships, we all need encouragement, we all need support, we all need each other. But here's the problem. If all of us come for ourselves, we all leave empty. Just imagine what would happen if even just in this environment, every time you came, you came with, how can I give something to someone else in this moment? Can you imagine what would happen? This beautiful exchange would happen where nobody would leave feeling empty or unseen. We would, we would all be blessed and benefit. See, something inside all of us that if we're not careful can cause us to use others to mask our own sense of lack and deficiency in ourselves, our own insecurities, our own fears, our own doubts. But something incredible and offer what we have we find God. Truly. We say this all the time. We are never more like God than when we're being generous. Because he's more generous than you and I could ever imagine. It's an act of giving to others, serving others. We discover who he is and who we are. The first layer of party theology is stop putting yourself at the center of everything. If you need a friend, be one. If you need a friend, be one. If you want people to be more generous, be more generous. If you want people to serve more, serve more. If you want people to be more kind, be more kind. If you want people to see things from a different perspective... Try and see things from a different perspective. This is a tricky one in marriage, right? 
Like if you want your spouse to see something from a different perspective, I'm not actually saying this right now, so you just forget what I'm saying. If you want your spouse to see something from a different perspective, get out of your corner and try to see something from a different perspective. Make life less about you and more about others. Be the one who takes the initiative. Be the one who serves first, who loves first, who invites first, who gives first. Let's be the kind of community who gives the place of honor to others, not seeking it for ourselves. Jesus goes on, verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. You see, Jesus is reinforcing this idea that don't do things just so that you will get But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was prepared. This is the rascality thing again. Somebody says this big important religious statement and then this is what Jesus does all the time he just wanders off and says tells a story imagine being the guy who said that he's like did I get it right did I get it wrong no I just feel stupid anyway Jesus says a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests at the time of the banquet he sent a servant to tell those who had been invited come for everything is now ready but they all alike began to make excuses the first said I've just bought a field and I must go Please excuse me. The other said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still the other said, I just got married so I can't come. I love that. First 20. Nothing much has changed in 2,000 odd years. I just got married. She says no. (laughs) They all begin to make excuses. They all begin to make excuses. I've got this important thing going on in my life. I can't. I've got this other thing happening in my life. I can't. I've got this important work I'm doing. Sorry, I I can't come. I love how in this story, the master asks a bunch of people who are incredibly busy and doing a bunch of important stuff. (coughs) Principle number two, part of theology, you need to let people say no for themselves. I wonder who in your life right now are you saying no for? You've been thinking about inviting them along to church, maybe inviting them along to a tribe, maybe just taking them out for lunch, but you're thinking there's no way they'll say yes. That person, no chance. We need to let people say no for themselves. Just shortly after Dana and I moved into our old house in Wallace Avenue, Christmas was coming, and uh, we had this, like, really good idea of inviting all the neighbors around for uh, like a Christmas lunch thing. But we had this like deep fear. What if nobody comes? We thought, well, let's do it anyway. We bought loads of food and we put little cards through all the neighbors' letterboxes and we said, Sunday afternoon, four o'clock, we'd love you all to come. And uh, I remember like, you know, we were just busy making the house look as nice as we could and all the food was in and then we like literally like the dining table was covered with food. And I had this thing of like, imagine if like no one comes. 
Like, it's going to be awful. Actually, do you know what would be even worse? I heard you were hungry. You know, be like, we heard you were hungry. You know? So, so we like, you know, did all the food stuff. And I remember a moment, like about quarter to four, like we just grabbed each other. And we're like, let's just pray. And we're like, Lord, let's save us. <laughs> you know? And um, four o'clock came, no knocks on the door. And we were like, yep, we are going to be eating this all week. And about five past four came, nobody nobody there, ten past four, and about a quarter past four, the door knocked, and we like, you know, you thought the queen herself was coming, we ran to the door, you know, and got to the door, and then had this moment like, <sighs> hello, and over the next kind of half an hour, neighbor after neighbor after neighbor came in to the point where like the house was, was pretty full, and it was just the most, it was the most amazing, amazing time. And at Sam and Jess's wedding before Christmas, Jeff and Denise Baird, some of you will know, Jeff and Denise were instrumental in helping us plant Lagan Valley Vineyard, and they now live in Port Ballantrae. And uh, we were catching up, it was beautiful, and Jeff said to me, we just had our second annual Neighbours Christmas afternoon. And I said, oh, that's amazing, tell me about it. And he said, well, like last year, 2017, Denise and I thought, right, let's do that thing that Andy and Dana did and invite all the neighbours around. And uh, he did exactly the same experience. They did all the food and they did all the stress. Nobody's going to come. And about half an hour after the time that they had invited everybody, they had over 40 of their neighbors in the house. And several of them reflected on the fact that they'd lived in that part of Port Ballantrae for more than 10 years and never met each other. You see, whenever we have the courage to let people say no for themselves... Beautiful things happen. Why? Because we were designed to do life together. Who are you saying no for? Who are you saying no for? They probably wouldn't come. They're probably busy. They've maybe just got married. Who are you saying no for? We need to let people say no for themselves. And then finally, verse 21, the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Jesus is doing in this moment what he does best. He's helping those around him understand what God is like. (coughs) Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. God longs for every single man, woman, and child alive in the world to be in relationship with him. Principle number one, make your life more about others. Principle number two, don't say no for others. And finally, never, ever, ever underestimate the generosity of God. Never underestimate the generosity of God who he is it's how he is 
we have an unapologetic vision for this community that we would be known as the most generous people in this city. We have to be. We worship the most generous being in the universe. And we become like that which we worship. If you're following Jesus and your honest assessment of yourself is that over the past few years you're not becoming more generous, I want to gently suggest you revisit whether you're actually following or not. Believing in Jesus is a totally different thing. We can believe in Jesus all day long and not actually move, right? We're supposed to follow him, to learn human that him. And he is the most generous human that has ever lived. I wonder as we finish this morning, how many of you need actually to experience the generosity of God? It's interesting, we can, when you land here, then we all do the same thing, right? We're good at that in Northern Ireland too. Oh, I'm so, so tight. I came to church to get encouraged and he just told me I'm tight. <laughs> See, the only way I have learned how to move my life from this posture to this posture is to encounter and experience God. It's not through effort, trying. It's called religion and you'll burn out on it eventually. The way we move from this to this is by actually experiencing the generosity of God. I love that that's alive in our community. One quick story. Why don't the band come up? And um, There's a young man in our community and um, he decided in the summer that he he was going to give his year to God and order his life around giving this year to God. And one of the things that happened with that was like his finance got really squeezed and he was in a little bit of debt. He came up with this big plan to continue to invest in what he felt like God was doing and pay off his debt. And uh, some of the other young people in our community heard that this was his plan. And so they decided that wasn't gonna be okay. And so they all went round and gave as much money. It's a dramatic moment. So they all went round, and then one Sunday night, um, they, we were doing a Jericho, I think, maybe December, November time, must be November. And just over here, I knew exactly what was happening. They took this young man in our community, and they put him in the middle, and they were in a circle around him. And I, th- I think the debt might have been like about 1,100 pounds, something like that. And they gave him about two and a half grand. And they said, we see you, and we love you, we want you to have this and it was that moment you know you watch somebody that can hardly stand up here's what I know about him for the rest of his life generosity will flow like he could never have imagined because he experienced something of who God is and how he is I wonder this morning who needs a touch of the generosity of God and that might be financially that might be in your spirit your emotions or whatever but why don't you stand with me if you're able I'm going to pray and then the band will lead us and then we'll, I guess, just see what happens. So if you're comfortable, why don't you just close your eyes.
Holy Spirit, we welcome you in this moment. Come now. Come and rest on us. Father, we thank you that you're better than we could imagine. Better than many of us would dare to believe. Come now. Help us to experience who you are.